If you have your Bibles, I'm going to invite you to go ahead and turn to Deuteronomy chapter 10. Deuteronomy chapter 10. If uh, you do not have a personal copy of God's Word, I would love for you to have one this morning in the chair in front of you, um, below you in that little uh, cage or shelf that you see there. Uh, There is a free copy of God's Word that is yours. You just take it, as I've told you in the weeks past. Nobody is going to chase you out of the door asking you why you've taken that. Everybody that would do that knows that that is a gift to you. If you do happen to use that Bible, our passage this morning is on page 148, and so you can find that there. It's also available on our screens as well. Deuteronomy chapter 10, verses 1 through 22. And before we look at that, one of the things I noticed as we were preparing to move into this passage is that one of the things that God does when he calls his people to trust and obey him is he often does it within this context of a grand vision of who he is. He inspires our trust and obedience by showing us what he is like. In that regard, he's a known entity. So what I mean by that is if you were a child and you were at the swimming pool and uh, you saw a perfect stranger in the water and the stranger said, hey, jump to me, I promise that I'll catch you. That's an unknown entity. By the way, I wouldn't encourage your children to do that. Your children might do that, they might not do that, but there's no reason that that child in that moment would think, I can trust that person to catch me. But if you substitute that unknown variable, that stranger, for uh, grandparent or parent, you say, hey, jump to me, I'll catch you. Unless this grandparent or parent is just a complete rascal and is always tricking their children, the child at least knows This is someone that is faithful to their word and has the ability to do what they said they're going to do. I can jump. I can trust. I don't have to, I don't have to wonder if this individual is going to be able to do what they said that they will do as they have called me to act and respond. In many ways, this is what God does. And so what we're going to find in this passage today is we're going to see aspects of God's character, who he is, and that is to inspire trust in the Israelites that they might live and obey in a particular way. And it's also helpful for us to see as we are called similarly to walk in obedience. So if you have your Bibles, Deuteronomy chapter 10, we're going to be looking at verses 1 through 22. If you would stand with me out of respect for the reading of the Word of God. Reading the whole chapter. Deuteronomy chapter 10, verses 1 through 22. This is God's Word. At that time, the Lord said to me, chisel out two stone tablets like the ones, the first ones, and come up to me on the mountain. Also, make a wooden ark. I will write on the tablets the words that were on the first tablets, which were broken. Then you were to put them in the ark. So I made the ark of acacia wood and chiseled out two stone tablets like the first ones. And I went up on the mountain with the two tablets in my hands. The Lord wrote on these tablets what he had written before, the Ten Commandments he had proclaimed to you on the mountain out of the fire on that day of the assembly, and the Lord gave them to me. Then I came back down the mountain and put the tablets in the ark I had made, as the Lord commanded me, and they are there now." And we have this parenthetical comment. The Israelites traveled from the wells of Ben-Jakon to Moserah. 
Then Aaron died and was buried, and Eleazar, his son, succeeded him as a priest. From there, they traveled to Guddaha and to Jotbathah, a land with streams of water. And at that time, the Lord set apart the tribe of Levi to carry the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord, to stand before the Lord to minister, and to pronounce blessings in his name as they still do today. This is why the Levites have no share or inheritance among their fellow Israelites. The Lord is their inheritance as the Lord your God told them. Breaks back into what Moses was saying in verse 5. Now, I had stayed on the mountain 40 days and 40 nights, as I did for the first time, and the Lord listened to me as this time also. And it was not his will to destroy you. Go, the Lord said to me, and lead the people on their way, so that they may enter and possess the land I swore to their ancestors to give them. And now, Israel, what does the Lord your God ask of you but to fear the Lord your God, to walk in obedience to him, to love him, to serve the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, and to observe the Lord's commands and decrees that I am giving you today for your own good? To the Lord your God belongs the heavens, even the highest heavens, the earth and everything in it. Yet the Lord set his affection on your ancestors and loved them, and he chose you, their ancestors, their descendants, above all the nations as it is today. Circumcise your hearts, therefore, and do not be stiff-necked people any longer. For the Lord your God is God of gods and Lord of lords, the great God, mighty and awesome, who shows no partiality and accepts no bribes. He defends the cause of the fatherless and the widow and loves the foreigner residing among you, giving them food and clothing. And you are to love those who are foreigners, for you yourselves were foreigners in Egypt. Fear the Lord your God and serve him. Hold fast to him and take your oaths in his name. He is the one you praise. He is your God who performed for you those great and awesome wonders you saw with your own eyes. Your ancestors who went down in Egypt were 70, were 70 in all. And now the Lord your God has made you as numerous as the stars in the sky. You may be seated as we go to the Lord and ask his blessing upon this study of his word. Lord, we thank you again, Lord, for your word. We thank you for how you guide us with it. Lord, I pray that you would guard me from error, that you would bless and instruct, build up, Lord, your people. We ask this in the holy name of Jesus, Lord, that you would hear these requests and that your spirit would take them and open eyes and hearts today, just as you did Lydia, giving understanding, making wise the simple. We are dependent upon you to move. So Lord, we pray that you would. We pray, Lord, right now is, is, is the next generation, Lord, is being prepared in different areas all throughout this building on this promotion Sunday where there's so much excitement, Lord. There's probably a lot of fear as well with school starting for many here in Safair ISD. Lord, we pray that you would give them peace, be with their teachers, be with their parents, and be with those that are volunteering right now, instructing them in the things of the Lord. I pray that they too would have eyes to see and ears to hear. Lord, that you would save a multitude of the children that you have entrusted to this congregation. Lord, that we would see them grow in the fear and admonition of the Lord. Lord, we depend upon you to do these things. So Lord, 
Do them to the praise of your name and the good of your people. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So I want us to look at Deuteronomy chapter 10, verses 1 through 22, by dividing it up into three sections or three principles. And the first section or principle is found in verses 1 through 9. Verses 1 through 9. And the principle that I want us to see or walk away from this passage with is that our God forgives. Our God forgives. Now, I think that for many people that are familiar with the scriptures or with Christianity, this concept of God being a forgiving God is is not something that is completely new to you. But I think that it bears repeating here in verses 1 through 9, given what we have just seen taking place. In the preceding chapter, in Deuteronomy 9, we see God describing in detail the rebellion of a people that had just been delivered from slavery in Egypt. So they get delivered from slavery, and they're griping and complaining about all kinds of things. We're going to not have food. We're not going to have water. You brought us out here to die. I'd rather just be a slave back in Egypt. And then they come to Mount Sinai, and they're hearing the voice of the Lord in thunder with Moses on the top of that mountain. And they're terrified. But at some point in their terror, they decide, you know what? We ought to pay tribute to the God that delivered us from Egypt. And so they find Aaron, and they say, Aaron, why don't you make a God for us that represents the God that delivered us from Egypt? And so he fashions a golden calf. We're familiar with that. Even if you're not familiar with the story, you know the language of golden calf. It's that kind of insignificant idol that people worship. And so, and it's funny. Like, if you go back and read that story, it's not funny, but it is funny. And it's funny because Aaron's explanation to Moses is, I just threw the gold in the fire and out popped this calf. Like, it's, it's, it is what your seven-year-old would tell you, Oh. I don't know where it just, you know, it just happened. But what happens is as Moses comes down, he's carrying the Ten Commandments, and he is rightly, righteously angered at this idolatrous response, and he breaks the tablets. Then God makes Moses an offer. He says, I will wipe these people off the face of the earth, and I will start over with you. And Moses says, but what about your glory? If you do that, everyone that watched you deliver them from Egypt will question your goodness. And it's not like the Lord said, oh, yeah, you're right, Moses. The Lord, Lord was testing Moses. Would, be, would Moses be about himself or be about the Lord's glory? And he recognizes that Moses is about the Lord's glory, and so he's testing him. He's refining him and his leader. And so what Moses does is he intercedes, he mediates on behalf of Aaron and the people, and God spares them. He has mercy. And so that brings us to Deuteronomy 10, verses 1 through 9. And what do we find happening in those verses? They're getting a second pair of Ten Commandments, which demonstrates our God forgives. Our God forgives even the most scandalous 
blasphemous, high-handed rebellions of his people when they turn from their wickedness to him. As one Old Testament scholar noted, the second writing of the law and the gift of the tablets is indicative of the graciousness of God and the response of God to the intercession of Moses. Brothers and sisters, friends, if our God is not a forgiving God, there is no second writing of the law or a giving of the tablets to the Israelites after their rebellion with the golden calf. What this teaches us is that while we will fall short of God's intention for us and sin against him, if we turn to him, he will forgive us. For our God is a God, the God, who forgives our sins. I love how Isaiah 55, 7 puts it. Let the wicked forsake their ways and the unrighteous their thoughts. Let them turn to the Lord and he will have mercy on them and to our God, for he will freely pardon. Some of you, like me, have royally messed up have sinned against God, and what you expect him to do is to come down the mountain and crush you. And instead, what he's doing in speaking to us through this passage is he's coming down the mountain saying, turn to me and receive the blessing of my word again, for I am a forgiving God. You don't have to choose destruction. I'm a forgiving God. My, my disposition toward you is to forgive you, to give you free pardon and mercy. Forgiveness is available to all who call upon the Lord. And then you say, but someone has to pay for my sins, otherwise God would be unjust. And you're right. You are right. The penalty of our sins against the holy God must be addressed. It must be addressed. It must be dealt with. And this is where the beauty of the gospel of Christ seen so clearly. Though your sins make you as red as scarlet, stain you, through the power of the gospel you can be made clean white as snow. You say, well, how are my sins going to be dealt with? How is my idolatry going to be dealt with? Christ Jesus comes and he takes the place, the righteous for the unrighteous. And he pays the penalty that your sins and my sins deserve, that we get to go free and be his children. That you're forgiven. Preacher, are you saying that someone else will pay the debt that I have accumulated through my sins, that's exactly what I'm saying. That he nailed the record of debt that was against you. He nailed it to the cross and that you don't have to bear it anymore. Our God forgives. You say, does he, does he forgive the types of sin that, that I've committed? Of course he does. Of course he does. He spared an entire nation 
that attributed their own rescue to an inanimate object that they made with their own things, a golden calf. I don't know how much more blasphemous it can get than to attribute to a non-living thing the work that the only living God can do. And yet he spares them and has mercy upon them and he has mercy upon you today that the unrighteous might be pardoned because of what God has done in Christ Jesus. Forgiveness is available to all who would turn away from their sins in faith to him. For our God forgives. Deuteronomy 1 through 9 teaches us that. I'm so hesitant to say it because it's so cliche, but sometimes cliches communicate truth. And I feel like maybe I've said enough up to this point for this not to sound like a cliche. I don't like cliches. You know why I don't like cliches? It's because they get so used within our culture, they get infused with meaning, and then when we apply them to God, they distort our vision of who God is. So I'm not, I'm not a big fan of them. But at least here, one of the things I think this principally teaches is this, is related to this idea that God forgives. He's a God that gives second chances to sinners. Third chances. Even fourth chances. Maybe on your fifth today. He is faithful to forgive those that call upon him. That's true of you this morning if you would call upon him. Our God forgives. The second point here, we won't be here quite as long as the first point. Not only does our God forgive, but secondly, our God keeps his word. Our God keeps his word. Simply put in these verses, verses 10 through 11, which could seem a little obscure because it's kind of talking about what happens in the future, which is a little bit of a break in the historical narrative there. One of the things that it highlights, though, is the fact that God keeps his word. He's keeping his promise that he made to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob regarding their offspring growing and flourishing in the promised land that they might fulfill their purpose of being a blessing to all the peoples of the earth. Even though the patriarchs were gone from the scene, God's promise remained. He's faithful. He keeps his word. He's someone that when he says he's going to do something, he does it. Principally for us, then, it ought to give us hope that God will fulfill every promise that he has made to us in Christ Jesus. This could go in a million different directions. But one of the ways that I thought about it is just how he promises us eternal life in a new heavens and a new earth. A coming world where without any coordination, the Lord put it on Jennifer's heart this morning to pray about this. A coming world with no more pain or tears. A world with no more cancer diagnoses or miscarriages or funerals. A world where death shall be no more. At times, it is hard to believe that such an existence is even real because of what we constantly live in. It is so far removed from our present circumstances, yet God's word is sure. For it comes from a God who always keeps his word. Even when it appears that he's slow in keeping his promise, he always keeps his word. You go, where where would this idea of it being slow to keep his promise? Well, who did he make the promises to? Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Did they enter the land? 
No. Not even Moses gets to enter the land. And then there are other promises that take place later on where there's a promise of the Davidic son that would come in 2 Samuel 7, given to David. There's going to be a son that sits on the throne. And we never see a son that sits on the throne like the son that's promised. Solomon fails, all the other sons fail. And eventually what happens? Christ comes. And there's generations that didn't see that fulfillment, but he was faithful to keep his word. And so here we are, we're hearing these promises that we're going to enter into a new heaven and a new earth one day in the new Jerusalem where the presence of the Lord will be our all and our all. There'll be no need for a son there because the glory of the Lord will be bright and there's no more pain, there's no more sin, there's no more death, there's no more things that, and it just feels so otherworldly. And that's right, it is. But it's a promise that is coming and he is faithful. You, you say, how do I know he'll keep his promise? Because the first fruit of those promises has already been raised from the dead. Christ Jesus, according to 1 Corinthians 15, is the first fruits of the new creation, promising that we too will participate in that resurrection and we will live with eternal life. Right now, though, we live in that not yet of that already. We're already a new creation, but we're longing for the day when this body of flesh will put on immortality and put on immorality, uh, immortality, not immorality. We have already put on immorality. We will take off immorality and put on immortality. But we can be certain that this will happen because God keeps his word. And he's not on our timetable. He's on his own. You say, why does he linger Second Peter tells us that the reason that he lingers, the reason that why he, he delays in our perspective, he, he's never late, he never delays. But the reason why it appears that he's delaying is because he wants all people to come to repentance. He does not want any to perish, but he desires that all would come to eternal life. And so he's opening up the door saying, I'm gonna return, I'm gonna keep my promise. Would you come in and be forgiven? Would you come and know the fullness of my joy as a child of God. These verses then teach us that God is trustworthy, that we can trust him. Like the analogy I used of the parent in the pool. He has known character. And so when he calls us to do something, we go, I can trust him. Which leads us to the third and final point. Not only is our God a God that forgives, our God forgives, our God keeps his word. Third and finally, looking at verses 12 through 22, and there is so much there to unpack, thinking about maybe coming back next week and just unpacking that. But one of the things I just want us to simply see in a summarizing way is that our God is worthy of our full allegiance. Verses 12 through 22 is full of some of the richest language and imagery in all of the Bible. And these verses describe God's desire for his people and how he wants them to respond to them. So we've seen he forgives, he keeps his word, that's his character. What does he call us to? He calls us to be fully allegiant to him. He is worthy. He desires that our outward actions, though they're important, would conform to a heart that is engaged in relationship to him. He is not looking for mere outward conformity. The Israelites got really good at that later on, and their hearts were far from them, though their outward actions 
were, were, were intended to show that they really loved God when really their hearts and their minds were far from the Lord. So what he says is he says, circumcise your hearts. And so circumcision in the flesh was a physical outward act that demonstrated that you belonged to part of the covenant. But a circumcised heart dealt with their emotion and their affection. So they're told, you ought to love God, serve God, walk in his ways, revere him. Why? Not so that you might become my people, but because by grace you already are my people. You already belong to me. You don't do these things so that you can get in. No, because you're already in, because by grace I've already set my affection upon you, because you are already my children. Walk in the ways of your Father. Walk in my ways. He made us His own And we owe him our lives, not as debtors in the flesh, but as those that belong to him by grace. What Deuteronomy 10 as a whole then teaches us is that when we fall short, if we turn to him, he will forgive us. When we struggle to trust, he reminds us that he is faithful. He desires our full allegiance and affection as the God who is both wonderful and worthy of our praise. So the question I leave us with this morning is, do you know this wonderful and worthy God who invites you to know him and love him? He will forgive you. He will keep his word. He is worthy of your affection. Would you pray with me? As you reflect on the message this week, feel free to reach out to our staff by emailing care at copperfieldchurch.com We would love to hear from you and pray for you. Also, don't forget to subscribe to this podcast and our other podcast, Equip for Good. Thanks for listening.